Turn in your copy of the Scriptures, if you would please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 11. Pride is a dangerous thing. It makes us blind to folly and delusional about our abilities. If you have never heard of the name of Morgan Robertson, don't worry, most people have never heard of him. In fact, he was a bit of a starving author type in the late 1800s. As an author, Robertson was relatively unknown and unsuccessful in his own time. But in 1898, this struggling and unaccomplished author wrote a fascinating novel. The novel was about a futuristic Atlantic ocean liner that was far larger and grander than any that had previously been built. Robertson filled this fictional ship with the rich and famous, who in the book were delighted to sail on a vessel which they proclaimed to be man's greatest work and unsinkable. But in Robertson's story on the maiden voyage of this ship, on a cold April night, the ship struck an iceberg and quickly sank into the frigid ocean waters. Robertson believed that his story demonstrated the Futility of Human Pride and Arrogance. In fact, the novel appeared under the title Futility when it was printed later that year. Well, fast forward 14 years. A real-life British shipping company named the White Star Line builds a steamer remarkably similar to the one in Robertson's novel. The new ocean liner was 66,000 tons displacement. Robertson's was 70,000 tons. The real ship, 882 feet long, Robertson's 800 feet long. Both ships were triple screw. Both could travel at the incredible speed for the time of 24 to 25 knots. Both ships could carry around 3,000 passengers, and yet both had enough lifeboats for only a fraction of that number. But that didn't seem to be a problem at the time because, of course, both ships were considered unsinkable. On April 10, 1912, the real ship left Southampton on her maiden voyage bound for New York. But of course, she never made it, because the real ship also struck an iceberg and sank, also on a cold April night. In his novel, Robertson named his ship the Titan. The White Star Line named her ship Titanic. A freakish correspondence where the prescience of fiction feels almost like prophecy, But maybe not prophecy, maybe pride, the outcome of pride is just that predictable. Robertson's fictional titan was created to demonstrate the futility of human pride and arrogance. The real ship, Titanic, is in that sense a tragic case of life imitating art. It's impossible to read the historical events surrounding the real sinking of the Titanic without being impressed by the fact that it was a completely unnecessary tragedy of human hubris. If only the owner had not pressured the crew to push the Titanic too fast in the ocean's conditions in order to impress his wealthy passengers on the maiden voyage. If only the captain had not charted a course too far north into frigid waters for the season. If only the Titanic had heeded the warnings from other ships that there were icebergs that had been spotted in the water near her location that night. If only they had not all believed, as had been said before they launched, that not even God could sink this ship. The story of the Titan and the history of the Titanic reveal a simple truth. In a moment, 
God can reduce the pride of human achievement to abject futility. This morning in our text, we come to an edifice of human pride and presumption, which God also reduces to confusion and futility. So it is fitting that this is our final text in the section of our series in Genesis that depicts the ongoing theme of judgment that we have been considering over the last months together. We've moved from creation in the opening chapters of Genesis to corruption that spreads out from the tree through humanity and then culminates in the necessity of judgment that begins at the flood and now works its way here to the post-flood world. And as humanity rises again in this post-flood, post-cataclysmic judgment world, we see God again needs to bring judgment because human pride rises with the rise of humanity. Following the genealogy of Genesis 10 that we considered briefly last week, the table of nations, we find the families of Noah begin to grow into the eventual nations of the world. Humanity is being reborn and the world is repopulated with these families. And that is the background that then sets the stage for the events that transpire in our text in Genesis chapter 11. So read with me beginning in verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. As we work our way through our text this morning, I'd like to make a few organizing observations as we move along. So here's the first one. It is typical of human culture to resist God in foolish arrogance. I want to unpack that thought with you from our text, these opening verses, in just a moment. But before we do that, let's make a few contextual observations here first. We we saw last week in Genesis chapter 9 that Ham, the son of Noah, is cursed as a result of dishonoring his father Noah. Subsequently, we noted that Ham's family, particularly through his son Canaan, but even the other sons of Ham, that Ham's family is remarkable in the genealogy that follows in chapter 10 as being the kinds of nations that will eventually oppose the people of God. In other words, Ham's family is not only being placed outside of this line of promise that's going to come through Noah's other son, particularly Shem, but Ham's descendants will resist and become enemies to this promised family. This is the ongoing enmity between the seed of the woman and those who are more like the serpent that was described back in Genesis 3.15. Well, one of Ham's grandsons that's recorded there in Genesis chapter 10 is a fellow named Nimrod. Nimrod is described as a great hunter and warrior. And that language there is actually a description of a man of violence. Mighty man is not a favorable term in Genesis. It's a negative one. This is someone who is renowned for violence. In fact, that that term mighty man that's used of Nimrod in Genesis 10 is the same word that's describing the men who were known for violence in Genesis chapter 6 right before the flood. Men of infamous reputation for their brutality. That's who Nimrod is. And we read in Genesis chapter 10 verse 10 of Nimrod, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria, and he built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Three things I want to note about this guy Nimrod. First, he's a city builder. 
Second, the cities that he builds become renowned for wickedness, Nineveh in particular. We're going to see Nineveh throughout the rest of the Old Testament as a culture renowned for its depravity. Or the cities that he builds grow into empires that will become future enemies of the nation of Israel to come, nations like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And third, the beginning of this guy's city-building, kingdom-forming work occurs at this place called Babel in the land of Shinar. And that city in Shinar is the subject of our text this morning. Shinar was located in the region of Mesopotamia, and so these people led by Nimrod, they come to this plain in Shinar, and they begin there to build a kingdom, and they start with a city. A city that has as its defining architectural feature a monstrous tower. They are forming here a culture and a civilization for themselves, a societal identity, so that they will avoid the fate of being spread out over all of the earth. And in doing this, they envision that they are forming a culture that is expressed in the strength of this city and the impressiveness of this tower that will ultimately result in the spreading fame of their name throughout the earth, that people will know that they are a great people. That's the backdrop of this text. Now, I said a moment ago that these opening four verses show us that it is typical of human culture to resist God in foolish arrogance. So how is that the case? I think that there are three ways that that shows up in the opening four verses. So number one, notice that human culture defies God. Now the reason that I keep speaking here of culture is that's precisely what we're dealing with here. Humanity is gathered together. They have one language. They are committed to one purpose. They are forming together a civilization. They are building a city. They are fashioning society. These are all culture building activities that they are committing to. And insofar as this is the first time that the Bible really gives us an insight into this kind of activity, it reveals something to us about what is at the very core of every culture that is dominated by sinful people. It is a culture that is being built on the defiance of God. Now, how is that? You may be wondering. How are they defying God? What commands of God are they transgressing here by building this city and this tower? And it's a fair question. We need to look, in order to answer that question, at the rationale that they provide for this massive construction project that they're undertaking. And it, the, the rationale is right there at the end of verse 4. Notice, they say that they are building this city and tower lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, what's the problem with that reason? The problem with that reason is that that is the exact opposite of God's command for mankind. The command that God gave to Adam and Eve back in the garden was not be fruitful and multiply and then huddle up together in one place to ensure that you don't get spread out and lost over the face of this creation that I've made. Enjoy this garden, go nowhere else. That wasn't God's command. Instead, his command to them was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it. Now, perhaps we might be tempted to think maybe these people have just lost track of that commandment. I mean, between now and then, there's been thousands of years of history. There's been a global flood that wiped out most of humanity. Maybe they don't even realize that that's the divine command. But that explanation is not going to work either because remember, when Noah and his family come out of the ark, God reaffirms that command in Genesis 9 verse 1. 
And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Nimrod is the grandson of Noah. Noah lives 350 years after the flood. In other words, Nimrod and Noah are contemporaries. Nimrod knows the command of God. What we have here is not an issue of ignorance. We have a position of defiance. And the basis of God's command to humanity back in Genesis chapter 1 and again reiterated in Genesis chapter 9 is his desire to have his image bearers take the fame of his glory and declare it and embody it to the ends of the earth. So this refusal by these people to not spread out is not an insignificant matter. It's not just a, a different real estate choice. It cuts at the very heart of God's plan for humanity and their purpose as God's image bearers. I think it's also part of an interesting developing theme in the book of Genesis. The cities that man builds stand opposed to the purposes of God. Because Nimrod is not the first city builder in the book of Genesis. Cain is. And in that case, Cain also in his city building activity is defying God. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 4, God condemned Cain to be a nomad, wandering away from society for the rest of his life. He says to Cain, you will be a wanderer on the face of the earth. But rather than wander as he had been sentenced to do for murdering his brother, we find in Genesis 4 that Cain goes off a little way and then he settles down in the land of Nod, east of Eden, and there he builds a city. I'm not going to wander, I'm going to settle down, and I'm going to build a city. And then he names it after his son. He wants his name to be great, to be remembered. He doesn't want to just pass out of history. He refused to do what God told him to do. He established a city, he built a culture, an act of defiance. And from Cain, you'll remember, come this people who are themselves renowned for their violence. Men like Lamech who boast of the fact that I've killed people for just slighting me. And that's the very character of this man Nimrod who we find is building a city again. You see, human history after the flood is repeating itself all over again. In similar fashion, we'll find later in the book of Genesis that we'll encounter the evil cities of the plain. This is where Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be located. So here's the main thought. In Genesis, cities stand opposed to God. They are epicenters of wickedness and depravity in the book of Genesis. They picture for us that the city of man stands opposed to the kingdom of God. Now, I said that there are three ways that our text shows us that it is typical of human cultures to resist God in their foolish arrogance. The first is that human culture defies God's commands. The second is that human cultures rebel against God's created order. Remember that the the purity of humanity is originally undone the moment that Eve reaches out to grab hold of Satan's lie that you can be like God. That's what she wants. And it's already an old lie by the time that Satan offers it to Eve because it's the very lie that Satan himself believed that caused him to fall from his lofty position. And that lie is an inversion of the entire created order. It's the lie at the heart of the proud heart of idolatry, the belief that we as creatures deserve the worship that belongs to the Creator who is blessed forever, the inversion of the created order, creature wanting what belongs to the Creator. 
Just like Eve tried to upend the created order by taking what did not and could never belong to her, quality with God, these people in the plain of Shinar are reaching out to take hold of the exact same lie. Because they say to one another in verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top where? In the heavens. At those times, in the place of the gods. Do you hear, by the way, what they've done in saying that? Where have we heard the phrase, let us make something before? Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And now we find humanity as though they are gods, mimicking that same language, saying to themselves, come let us build for ourselves a tower that goes to the place where God dwells, in the heavens. Understand also what is happening here in the construction of this tower that goes to the heavens. Because Eden was the mountaintop temple sanctuary of God, the place where God came to be with man. We noted back in the opening chapters of Genesis the temple-like language connected with the Garden of Eden. It's the mountaintop sanctuary of God. And every future mountaintop temple, every reference to God's holy mountain or God's holy hill is an echo back to Eden. We heard one of those echoes in the Scripture reading in Psalm 2. Who have I placed on my holy hill? My King, my Anointed One. The holy hill, the, the place where God is with humanity is representative of the sanctuary where God is. But Eden was lost to man because we wanted there to be like God. Not on His terms, making us in His image, on our terms. By taking what didn't belong to us. And here we find that mankind, they are trying to build their way back by constructing a mountainous tower to reach up into the heavens. To forcibly recapture what was lost in Eden and to go a step farther to claim an equality with God that had been denied to humanity in Eden. So not only does humanity defy God, but it defies the created order itself. Reaches, our cultures, reach for what belongs to God alone. Third, human culture arrogantly endeavors to usurp God's place. We noted a moment ago that the rationale that these people give for their building of a city and a tower is that they don't want to be dispersed over the whole of the earth. That's the, the reason, the rationale that they provide. But what's the motive behind what they're doing? We find that as well in verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They want to make their name great purpose that's been given to humanity is to be image bearers, likeness bearers who are going to take the fame of God's name and to fill it to the ends of the earth, to proclaim it, to spread it to the uttermost reaches of the cosmos that God has made. But these people, they want to gather together in one place and to erect a monument to themselves in order that their name will be great on the earth. So this whole city and this tower is a physical expression of the monstrous pride that resides in a human heart and that therefore animates all human cultures. These people are setting themselves in direct opposition to God by asserting that they have the right 
to make it their life's aim, their life's purpose to live, to make their own name great on the earth. So this isn't some little indiscretion. This is open rebellion against the very purpose of God for humanity as His image bearers. Understand what they are doing here in building this city and this tower. They are undoing their own humanity. That is what is transpiring here. Pride is at the heart of every human's sin nature, and therefore it is not surprising to discover pride is at the heart of this human city. So it's typical of human cultures to resist God in foolish arrogance. Why? Because human culture defies God's commands, human culture rebels against God's created order, and human culture arrogantly endeavors to usurp God's place. So two quick comments of application before we move deeper into our text this morning. Number one, we should not be surprised when our culture endeavors to reject God. Many people have clung on to this notion that the United States is somehow a Christian nation. It's comforting at times to think that or to want to believe that and to think that it's our responsibility as Christians to reclaim the United States as the nation for God in the world. Christian nationalism, we might refer to that thought. But that's, that's never been an accurate thought. When we think back, in fact, to the nation's founding, it would be far more accurate to say that our nation was founded not on Christian belief, but on a shared Judeo-Christian moral framework. Those are two different things. In fact, many of the founding fathers were deists, meaning that they believed, generally speaking, in the existence of some kind of infinite being, but by and large, many of those men could not have been called orthodox Christians by any sense of the word. And so if our nation's founding was established on a framework of a shared Judeo-Christian set of values, it is also certainly the case that today those shared moral values are coming apart at the seams in our culture. We are in a culture that has embraced and that celebrates nearly every form of immorality that is conceivable in the depravity of the human heart. Not just tolerates it, not just affirms it, celebrates it. And as secularism and moral pluralism flower in our society, we find that our culture continues on a trajectory that is a well-worn path in human history, a path that many societies, almost every culture has trodden in the history of humanity, one of decadent folly that leads to arrogance and ultimately to the defiance of the creature in the face of the Creator. <clears throat> What's my point in all of this? My point is to say we do not need, as believers living in the place and the time in which we are living, we do not need to be wringing our hands and imagining that this cultural moment in which we are living is the first time that the society has tr traced down this path in the history of humanity. It has happened time and time and time again. Our responsibility is faithfulness in the time and place that God has called us. Our culture today is a reflection of the rebellion and pride of every human culture that sets itself in opposition to God. Now, it may be true that the technological advancements of our age make the evil of our time uniquely potent. There are some unique things about what technology is accomplishing. So there are some unique elements, but the main emphasis of human depravity and defiance of God has been the same. There is nothing new under the sun. <clears throat> Second thought of application. Whose name are we trying to make great? Human culture is a reflection 
of the human heart. The city and the tower were means to an end, the end of making the names of people great on the earth. That desire to live for the glory of our own name is hardwired into our fallen natures. I've said it before, pride is the default, out-of-the-box, factory setting of the fallen heart of mankind. And that's such a tragedy because we were created for so much more than self-worship. We were created to make much of God. And we have fallen because we have tried and we continue to try to make much of ourselves instead. So whose name are you living to make great to those around you? When you use the gifts and the talents that God has given to you, when you use those gifts, whether it be at home or at work or at school or at sports or at church, wherever it may be, whatever your gifts may be, when you use those gifts and talents, who are you hoping that those around you will praise and admire? Let me make this personal. When I step behind this pulpit, is my heart beating with a passionate desire that despite the inadequacy of my preaching, that you would see something of the beauty of God and the glory of the gospel reflected in God's Word? Or is my desire to preach a clever or an eloquent sermon that you will admire me for? Pride is such a deceitful, ugly thing. I've mentioned it a few times in the last couple of weeks, but I'm going to remind you of it again. Our mission statement as a church, we are called to glorify God. That's what we were made for, created for as image bearers. That is what we are redeemed for in Christ, to glorify God. And we need to be so often reminded of that fact because we are so often tempted to bring, to steal that glory for ourselves. So in all the things that you do, in all of the times that you have, in all of the places where God puts you, whose name are you living to make great on the earth? We are called to glorify God. Major observation from our text, number two, the greatest human achievements are laughable in comparison with God's power. We've seen the reasons and the motives and the brick-making and the city-building and the tower-constructing. We've seen man's plans and his desires and his actions. But what is God's response to what is happening in the plain of Shinar? We find his response beginning in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Note with me two observations from God's response here. Number one, however great man's achievements may be, God must still be said to come down in order just to see them. Don't miss the humor that Moses is infusing to the text as he writes it here. The men of this city are building a tower which they imagine will have its top up in the heavens, the place where God dwells. 
But in order to survey this tower that they are building, God has to be said to come down just to see what these people are doing. Now, we know that God is omnipresent or that He is everywhere present and that God is not confined by the limitations of space. So, we should not conclude from what Moses is writing that God had to physically come down in order to see what was happening on earth. That's not how it works. This is an expression, a metaphor that is humorously conveying the fact that God's greatness is so far beyond the activity of these people that He must condescend to even consider the ridiculousness that they are performing. This tower that supposedly reaches up into the heavens is comical in its dimensions in comparison with God, such that he has to come down in order to see it. And notice also that Moses, he refers to these people who build this tower as the children of man. He's just rubbing it in at this point. These people are like little children with a little block tower who imagine that they have built something that now makes them big stuff. One commentator put it like this, a tiny tower conceived by a puny plan attempted by a pint-sized people. Every great human achievement is like this, by the way. Comical in comparison to the power and grandeur of God. We read it in the Scripture reading this morning, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot a vain thing? He who sits in heaven, the place where they are building this tower, he who sits in heaven laughs at them. Every great human achievement comical in comparison with the power of the one who sits on the throne. The second observation from God's response is that God can bring all human endeavors to futility and confusion at a moment's notice. Human pride and self-confidence is always misplaced. These people imagine themselves to be safe and secure because they've built a strong city. These people imagine themselves to be great and important because they've built a big tower. But in a moment, God comes and He completely turns the tables on all of their plans. God assesses what humanity is doing. They have one culture. They have one language. They have one purpose. And this is not going to be the beginning of their arrogance or the end of their arrogance. It is just the beginning. They will continue to pursue this path of defiance unless their arrogance is confronted. And so God brings their pride to futility. It's like we read in Isaiah chapter 2. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. Against all of the oaks of Bashan. Against all of the lofty mountains. Against all of the uplifted hills. Against every high tower. And against every fortified wall. Against all of the ships of Tarshish. And against all of the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of man shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. God brings all of the plans and schemes of these people to absolute nothingness in a moment. He is sovereign over the working of their minds, sovereign over the operation of their tongues, sovereign over the working of their ears. However godlike these people imagine themselves to be, they are creature, He is creator. 
One moment they are far too clever for their own good in their plans and in their presumption, and the next they are reduced to a bunch of incoherent babblers. God takes away in an instant their ability to intelligibly communicate with one another. Just imagine how laughable, by the way, that scene must have looked like. All of these serious people with their serious business and their serious plans, building a tower to the heavens. Important people, big stuff people. And then suddenly they sound to each other like a bunch of blathering buffoons, speaking gobbledygook, baby gibberish in one another's ears. It's total chaos and confusion. It's a ridiculous spectacle that appropriately ridicules the ridiculous thought that they could ever reach the place of God on their own. And their incoherent babbling speaks volumes, doesn't it? It speaks eloquently of the fact that placing your trust, your hope, your obedience in anything other than the person of God is deluded madness. The promise of human pride and arrogance are always bankrupt, and trusting in them is folly. So on that thought, two questions that I'd like us to put to ourselves this morning. Number one, what are you trusting in? What are you placing your hope and confidence in life in? These people trusted in their city and in their tower. God revealed that to be folly in comparison with the greatness of His power. But what are we trusting in? What are we placing our confidence in. It has been disheartening over the last few years to observe how many Christians seem to have their hope and trust wrapped around certain political candidates and the outcome of political elections. Here we are yet again headed into another election cycle. A couple weeks ago I heard an ad from a political candidate, an ad that should be revolting to all of us. Part of that ad went like this. On June 14th, 1946, God looked down on his planet paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God gave us, insert candidate name. God said, I need somebody who will be strong and courageous, who will not be afraid or terrified of the wolves when they attack, a man who cares for the flock, a man to shepherd mankind who won't ever leave or forsake them. I need the most diligent worker to follow the path and remain strong in faith and no belief in God and country. So God made candidate name. They don't write ads like that to appeal to atheists. They don't write ads like that to appeal to the marginally religious. They write ads like that because they believe that message will appeal to evangelical Christians. What unbelievable hubris to say that God ever needed anyone. And what blasphemy to associate messianic terminology with someone who is not Jesus Christ. But more than that, that ad reveals that well-paid, well-educated, savvy marketing people think that American evangelicals are susceptible to a message that presents them with a Savior for all that ails the world today who is someone other than King Jesus. 
And what's sad about that is they may just be right. I'm sure the market research that they've done would show them that they aren't wasting their money when they make ads like that. Christian, our hope, our confidence, can never be located in a city, in a tower, in a nation, in a political party, or in any mere man. All of those things are laughable in comparison with the one who sits on the throne. You want security? You want someone to trust in? You want a strong tower? It isn't found in Babel or in Babylon. You want something to trust in? Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. So what are we trusting in? Second question, Christian, what are you afraid of? I hear so many Christians who are so afraid of what our world is becoming and where particularly technology is leading us. Advancements in biomedical technologies, trying to reverse the aging process of our bodies or even change the constituent nature of our bodies themselves. The rapid development of artificial intelligences that seem so dangerous in so many ways. Genetic engineering, opening up procreative decisions that formerly belonged to God alone. We should have biblical, moral, ethical obligate, uh, objections to those things. We should be saddened to see where the outcome of human sin and pride is taking our society. That's appropriate. But we don't need to be terrified of any of those things. Because the Tower of Babel reminds us that the greatest of all human endeavors to usurp God's authority are laughable in the face of His power. And the Tower of Babel reminds us that it is God who establishes the limits of human arrogance before He steps in and reduces it to confusion and futility. In Job, we read that God said to the oceans when He created them, Thus far you shall come, and no farther, and here your proud waves shall be stayed. In our text, we see that God, like He did with the oceans, sets limits on humanity, on our achievements, and on our arrogance. Thus far you shall come, and no farther, and here your pride will be stayed. So where does the future lead with all of these areas where mankind is seeming to push the boundaries and the limits of our humanity? Where are we going? I haven't the foggiest idea, but God does, and that's enough. Last summary observation from our text this morning. God's judgments are for the good of the world. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all of the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all of the earth. It's funny to consider, isn't it, that no human activity is capable in the end of withstanding the plans and purposes of God. These people settled down in this place with the express purpose of not being spread out over the earth. And yet God says, that's not my plan. And in a moment, that is exactly where they are going. Less unified than they ever have been or ever conceived that they could be. 
And so even in judgment, we find here that God is, in fact, being gracious. He doesn't wipe them out. He doesn't destroy humanity and start all over again. And and even in the judgment that He gives them, His redemptive plan for humanity is unfolding in front of our eyes because His plan involves His glory going to the ends of the earth and that image bearers of every tongue, every tribe, every nation will one day be saved and restored to relationship with Him so that image bearers from every tongue, tribe, and nation, as Rob read for us this morning, will one day be standing before the throne crying, holy, holy, holy. Meaning then that God's plan for humanity's spreading across the globe is both for His glory and for our good. And so this judgment at Babel will be repeated again, but this time as a miracle at Pentecost, where the apostles will receive gifts and those listening will receive the gift of hearing, words spoken in their native languages, in their heart languages, the gospel going forth in the tongues of the earth. In other words, what comes first in judgment, this spreading of the languages becomes a vehicle of gospel grace in accordance with God's good plans. So three concluding thoughts as we close. Number one, the battle between the city of man and the city of God continues. In the biblical narrative, Babel will give way to what will eventually become the Babylonian Empire. But even after the Babylonian Empire has come and gone, the Biblical authors will continue to refer to the city of Babylon as a metaphor for the kingdoms of earth that resist the kingdom of God. In fact, in Revelation 18, there's this prophecy of the fall of the great city of Babylon, the cities of earth being subdued in the final judgment by God. So the events that transpire in this little city that have, we've been examining this morning, they actually set the tone for unredeemed humanity moving forward. Humanity building cultures, building cities, always in proud rebellion against heaven. In fact, we sometimes, I think, are tempted to view these events in the opening verses of chapter 11 as kind of a strange story in the book of Genesis, an odd event of strange language in a tall tower. But in reality, this is a significant event in the meta-narrative of Scripture. It sets the stage for the ongoing war between Babylon and the kingdom of God. So the battle here is just beginning. Second, the work of proclaiming God's glory in every tongue and to every nation remains our mission today. The command that's given to humanity to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with image bearers is renewed for us by our Lord Jesus Christ in His great commission. When He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What comes at the end of the age? The fulfillment of that mission. Image bears from every tongue, tribe, and nation. You see, we are to be a people who care deeply about the global mission because we are invested in the mission of God in the world. That mission is our marching order as the people of God. Which is why one of the three vision statements that we have as a church is that this assembly desires to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in our local and in our global communities. Why? Because that's the mission of God in the world and therefore it must be integral to our mission as a church. Third and finally, there is ultimately hope for sinners like you and me 
not because we were ever able to climb our way to heaven, but because heaven came down to us. We could not build a tower high enough that God would not still need to come down just to observe it. Every human effort that endeavors to merit God's favor or to ignore His existence or to worship ourselves in His place, it is all tower-building activity of foolish pride. So we should be overwhelmed at the thought that as we were trying to build these ridiculous towers, God came down to us instead. Not God condescending to gaze upon these pitiful towers that we build, but God condescending to take on our humanity and to go to a cross. That was the first time that Christ came, but that will not be like His second coming. Because the next time that Christ comes, it will not be as a suffering servant to die in our place. It will be as a conquering king to lay low every culture, every city, every kingdom that has rebelled against his rule. To destroy Babylon and with it the pride of man that is raised against the kingdom of God. As we read in our scripture reading this morning from Psalm 2, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Father, now we give you thanks that in Christ... You have brought us who are far off, near by the blood of your Son. You have reconciled us, redeemed us, justified us, adopted us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And so, Father, we also thank you that that is not the end of the story, but that Christ is coming again to ransom those who have, redeemed, who have been redeemed in him and also to lay low all of human pride and arrogance that is raised against heaven. So, Father, I pray, reduce the pride in our human hearts to a brokenness over the recognition of our need for you. May we trust in nothing other than the high tower that you provide for the righteous. May we run to it, Father, so that we may be safe. In Christ's name, amen.